Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles. We're continuing our study of First Peter. We're in First Peter chapter 4, and this morning we're going to be looking at verse 7 of chapter 4. Now, as we've been going through the book of First Peter, the apostle is continually pointing us to the reality that our new birth through the Lord Jesus Christ has effects on the way that we live. It should change the trajectory of our lives. He uses many different ways of communicating this. One of the overarching ones is to speak of us as exiles in this world. That we used to be at home. We used to see this world as the place that we were comfortable. This was the place that we were from. But he says that through your new birth, you are now exiles. You are now foreigners and should be living in such a way that displays that your homeland is not here, but it is to come. In chapter 4, We've continued this study of how we who have received the grace of God are to live in our lives. And specifically last week, we spoke about how we are to turn from the flesh and begin to live to the spirit. One of the images that we used to speak of that was of a sinking ship like the Titanic, that the time of the flesh is like the ship that we trust and we think will last forever, but ultimately it is sinking and we need to abandon ship. We need to live to the spirit in which we will live forever. And now in verse seven and following, Peter continues this line of thinking, drawing us to the time when the ship will finally be sunk And that we will live in the Spirit for all time. So hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. I'll read through verse 11 for us. This is God's holy word for us, His people. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. And sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let us go to Him now in prayer. Lord God, even as this inspired word teaches us that we must live to the spirit and not to the flesh, we pray that we would come now to these verses of scripture, to the truth that you have inspired, not with the eyes of flesh, but with the eyes of the spirit. For we know that spiritual truth must be spiritually discerned. And so we pray, O God, that you would be faithful yet again to empower the preaching of Your Word with the Spirit, and that You would empower the hearing of Your Word with the Spirit. That this might not just be like rain that runs off of a rain jacket, 
goes down to the ground and runs into the gutters, but that it would soak in. That we would be nourished, that we would be fed this morning. And that we would go forth from this place more conformed to the image of Christ. And it's in His name that we do pray. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Over the past generation, no topic has more dominated popular Christian thinking than that of the end times. The late great planet Earth, Countdown to Armageddon, the Left Behind series, I would say, were more widely read over the last several decades than Christian uh, classics like Pilgrim's Progress or St. Augustine's Confessions or Luther's Commentary on Galatians. I believe that most of us are well aware of the influence that end-time theology and its derivative media has played in the culture. Novels and movies based upon the supposed events of the last days are big money and hugely influential in the way we frame our own theology. However, much of what gets communicated about the end times emphasizes the sensational. It highlights what is well framed on a movie screen or what would make a reader flip the page or buy the next volume in the series. And sadly, it has created a popular understanding of how to approach the end times that does not always comport well with Scripture. For when Peter addresses the end times, he assumes that a proper understanding of the end will not bring mania and drama but rather self-control, sober thinking, and prayer. Look at verse 7 again. It says, The end of all things are at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So what does Peter mean when he says that the end of all things is at hand? Without developing a full theology of the end times, let us at least get a summary of what the Bible teaches about the future. The first thing that we should see is that Peter believes that the end times constitutes the whole time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. The end is at hand. It is now, Peter says. The author of the book of Hebrews says it this way. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. You see, the apostles understood that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ had ushered in the final stage of redemptive history. And what that means is that Jesus Christ and his work on the cross is the height of God's redemptive work in human history. There is nothing else that needs to be done, nor is there anything else that needs to be revealed for God's purpose of redemption to be accomplished. Jesus is the final word in the final stage of history. The next thing that will happen in the history of redemption is the end. And therefore, Peter rightly says that the end of all things is at hand. 
And so too does Augustine in the 4th century and Luther in the 16th century and the church today in the 21st century rightly say the end is at hand for we are living in the last or the final period of God's redemptive plan. The end of all things is at hand. The next thing that we understand is that the culmination of the end will occur when Jesus returns. Just as Jesus ascended into heaven, He will also return from heaven to the world. And when He returns, the Word of God tells us that there will be a loud trumpet blast, that the dead will rise, those who are in Christ will be vindicated and will enter into their eternal reward, and the unrighteous will enter into eternal punishment. This resurrection from the dead will mean the reunification of our souls with our bodies. However, our bodies will be renewed in such a way that they will be like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. They will be without decay, without weakness or sickness or passions. And death itself will be abolished. Now, even as our bodies will be renewed at this time, so will all of creation. For creation itself will be set free from its slavery to death and corruption. All the world will be purified with fire, as it were, burning away all that is impure. And all things will be made new. Our renewed bodies will be made fit to dwell upon this new earth in perfect harmony and love. And then the Word of God tells us that the throne of God will come down out of heaven and the renewed creation will be heaven and earth united in a blessed existence for all eternity. And we who through Christ have received adoption into this renewed existence will dwell in the presence of God and of the Lamb for all time. You see, this is the end of all things. But we must understand that end does not mean cessation or extinction of all things. You see, the end of all things is the goal or the purpose of all things. The purpose of creation. The purpose of our bodies. The purpose of our marriages. The purpose of our culture. Of our music. The purpose of the church. Of history. The purpose of your joy and of your sorrow. The purpose of your pleasures and your pains. The purpose of your laughter and your tears. The purpose of all things is quickly coming upon us. And the designed end and goal is at hand. Paul describes it like labor pains coming upon a woman who will bring forth a wonderful child. The end, the purpose of these contractions is coming and the end of labor is more glorious than you could even imagine even a human being. And the end of all things will bring about something infinitely more glorious than what was before. We might think of it like a a caterpillar that must go into a cocoon to become a butterfly, right? It's the end of the caterpillar. It is no more. And yet, its end is the beginning of something much more glorious and beautiful. 
And when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, what he means is that creation is close to its appointed purpose. And the new creation that will come about will be of such glory and beauty that we cannot even comprehend it now. In the inspired words of John, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christian. The end of all things, the purpose of all things is at hand. And this news should not create fear. This coming of Christ should not produce hysteria and confusion. Rather, for all of those who are in Christ, the end of all things should lead first to self-control. Look again at verse 7 of your text. It says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled. You see, in light of the end, do not give in to eschatological frenzy, but rather pursue personal restraint. The word translated self-control here in verse 7 is used throughout God's word to speak of those who exercise proper judgment in light of the truth. We might use the word discretion or moderation. To give an example, every time that our family orders Papa John's pizza, I tell myself, David, two pieces of pizza are going to be sufficient. Maybe three. Because I know. I have the knowledge that all the fat and carbs and sodium is not good for me. I have that knowledge. I know that. I know that if I eat too much, I'm going to wake up the next morning all puffy and parched. But when the goodness of bacon and pineapple pizza is before me, I don't have self-control. I have the opposite of it. I give in to the passion and moderation and discretion just fly out the window. Now, Peter as we know, has been addressing the need to refrain from such bodily passions. The internal desires that drive us towards excess and sin. What he calls in verse 3, what the Gentiles want to do. And to be perfectly honest, many times it's what we Christians want to do as well. We have a craving, a desire for our former way of life. The broken flesh continues to wage war against the Spirit. We continue to crave and desire the way of sin in the flesh. But Peter is saying, fight the desire to give in to such sinful behaviors with the knowledge that the end is at hand. Now, how do these things connect? How does the closeness of the end empower us as Christians to exercise self-control in this world? Well, first, it reminds us that the struggle against sin is almost over. 
Its defeat is definitive. And knowing that the end is coming should strengthen us to greater vigilance in our fight against the passions of the flesh. It's as if you are running a race and you see the finish line before you. You can kick it up a notch because you know the end is here. You're not going to give up when you can see the finish line before you. And Peter is saying, don't give up the fight. The end is at hand. Second, it warns us that the judgment against the flesh is coming. The Bible says that people will not see the end coming. Jesus says in Luke 17, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You see, the Lord is coming on a day and at an hour that we do not know and we do not want to be found doing The will of the flesh, but rather the will of God. And third and most important, we should love and desire the coming of our Lord. And this love of our coming Lord should constrain our hearts. The glorious vision of what is to come should propel our actions towards holiness and righteousness. We should desire to live as citizens of the world that is to come. A vision of what is coming is before us and we should no longer live as the Gentiles, but live as residents of the new Jerusalem that is at hand. We should desire to live as citizens of the world that is to come. And the more this coming new existence is where you place your desires for fulfillment and pleasure, the more your grip of the flesh will be loosened. For the end is near. So be self-controlled in all of your actions. The next thing that we see is that a knowledge of the end should also make us sober in our thinking. Verse 7 again, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober minded to be self-controlled is to have a proper knowledge of the truth control your actions and to be sober minded is to have a proper knowledge of the truth control your thoughts and your emotions the apostle uses this image of sobriety in contrast to drunkenness to explain this dynamic those who are drunk their minds are affected by alcohol in such a way that their thoughts and emotions are altered. They don't match with reality. Vision is blurred. Reaction time is decreased. Rational thought is impaired. And in relation to the struggle towards holiness, having a proper understanding of the coming end of all things should, should sober you up. It should clear your mind. What is driving your thought life and emotions? Are you drunk with the passions of the flesh? Are the desires of the flesh what control your mind and your thinking and your emotions? Or has the truth of God's word and work cleared your thinking in such a way that you have a clear vision of what is coming so that you can think properly about what's happening now? When the flesh is controlling your mind, when it's the controlling factor in your thought life, you begin to believe lies that lead to fear 
anxiety, anger, distrust, depression, and pride. This is what happened to our first parents. They knew the truth of God's word, that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but then they became drunk on the lie of the enemy. And the fruit that would bring death became desirable to them. The forbidden became intoxicating. And in disobedience to the truth of God's warning, they followed the lie that they could become like God. And the flesh lies to us constantly. It tells us to pursue fulfillment and happiness through disobedience to God's way of life. Why do we struggle to think clearly? Why are we overcome with distressing emotions? Ultimately, it's because we have followed the way of the flesh in place of following the Word of God. And in relation to the coming end, we must pursue a proper thought life in light of the end of all things. Let's take one example of drunken thinking that seems to be more and more prevalent today. Anxiety. Now, if you Google the definition of anxiety like I did, you will get the following. Anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Today, we are an anxious people. We worry about our health. We worry about our kids. We worry about getting into college. We worry about paying for college. We worry about our 401k. We worry about gun violence and terrorists. We worry about anything and everything. But we need not worry. We do not need to be anxious because we know the end. We know the outcome. We know the end of all things is at hand. And whatever comes now will end in something more glorious than we can even imagine. Will there be struggle and loss before the end? Of course there will be. But we must train ourselves to think with sobriety. We must think as the Apostle Paul thought, who said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, that is sober thinking. Not allowing the worries of today to override the reality that the end is at hand. You see, a proper knowledge of the end should cause us to act with self-control. It should cause us to think with clarity. And the final thing that we see is that a proper knowledge of the coming end should cause us to pray with understanding. Look again at verse 7. You're going to know verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. As we have already seen in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, following the flesh hinders your prayers. Yet, if we act and think in accordance with God's word, our prayers will be effective. This is the connection that Peter makes here. For the sake of means that there is a direct connection between the way that we act and think about the end times and the way that we pray right now. Effective prayer is not rooted in intensity of emotion. Rather, effective prayer is rooted 
in the light of God's will. When we pray with understanding, the disciples of Jesus were correct when they asked, Lord, teach us to pray, for we need to understand how to pray rightly. And what did Jesus teach them to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. You see, when we have a proper understanding of the coming end, it should cause us to pray that the kingdom of God would come. It should cause us to pray for the return of our Lord. It should cause us to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Yet so often our prayers are dominated by the concerns of this life, by the concerns of the flesh. And of course we're to pray for our earthly needs. Of course Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But all of our prayers should be flavored with a sense that the end is at hand and that the end is good. We should first pray, thy kingdom come before give us this day our daily bread. We should pray that the Lord would hasten the day of His return. That the Lord would come and make all things new. For all answers to prayer now are in some sense provisional until the Lord comes. For until the end comes upon us, there is no fullness of life and health and blessing. But when that day comes, our faith will turn to sight and our prayer will turn to praises. And so we need to be a people who pray. We need to be a people who pray earnestly. We need to be a people who pray often. And we need to be a people who pray with understanding. And I'll take this opportunity to invite you. Every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, people gather together in the family room right over here to pray for this service. And I would invite you, if you're a regular attender here at 8.30, you only have to get here a little bit earlier. Join us. Pray with us. For we need to be a people who are constantly in prayer. For the end is at hand. The blessedness which you desire is so close that you can taste it. And so pray that the Lord would come. Now, within Orthodox Christianity, there are several views on what is going to happen between now and the end. There are people who hold to a historic premillennial view. There are dispensational millennialists. There are postmillennialists. There are amillennialists. Yet, no matter where you land on the question of end times theology, all Christians, no matter where you are on that spectrum, must approach the end times with self-control, sober thinking, and prayer. For the end is not something to be feared. It is not something that should be dreaded. Rather, it is the culmination of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. For He entered into this world in the flesh to redeem the flesh. He came to this world to set it free from the corruption of death. And through His death, through the shedding of His blood, He won the right to make all things new. For His blood paid the penalty for sin and His resurrection opened the door for the new creation to begin. You see, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was the first taste 
It was the first sign, the first bud to sprout in what will be our eternal existence. And all those who through faith in his work are united to him have been freed from sin's power and death's destruction. And when he returns, he will bring us to the fullness of our new life. So act in accordance now with what is coming soon. Not with fear and mania, but with understanding and prayer, trusting that the Lord who has saved us from sin through His death will save us from death through His resurrection life. The end is at hand. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. And pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go now to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we have heard over and over and over again this morning from your word that the end is at hand. And yet, Lord, we feel as a church that we have waited long. That we have waited long to see you come. We have waited age after age. Sun after sun has set. And yet still we wait for You to come. And so, O Lord, we call out to You, Come, Lord Jesus, come. For we feel in our own lives and we feel in our world around us that the powers of hell continue to grow in their boldness. And that the conflict continues to thicken. We feel the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ's warning and word that love will grow cold in these days. And we call out to you, O God, how long, O Lord, how long until you come to vindicate your church, to turn her sighs and her tears in her blood into rejoicing and fulfillment in life. For we long, O Lord, to hear the trumpet blast. We long to hear Your voice. We long, O God, to see You face to face. And should we not? For we, O God, are called a loving bride. Should we not desire the coming of our bridegroom? Should we not mourn until the day that You return? For the whole creation, O God, mourns and groans and waits to hear Your voice that shall restore our beauty, that shall make the waste places rejoice. So come, Lord, and wipe away the curse, wipe away the sin, wipe away the stain, and make this world of ours that has been broken by sin full again. For we look forward to that day when the new Jerusalem will come forth from heaven and that the dwelling place of You, O God, will be with us and that You will be our God and we will be Your people yet again. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.